This is a podcast for Journal of Ecology, a British Ecological Society publication. I'm delighted to introduce David Tillman, McKnight uh, Presidential Chair in Ecology at the University of Minnesota and Distinguished Professor of the Bren School of Environmental Science at University of California, Santa Barbara. Excuse me. Welcome, Dave. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure to be here. Dave, you recently wrote a very thought-provoking and big-picture paper uh, for the Journal of Ecology under the title Mini Reviews. I was hoping you might be able to briefly summarize that for us. Well, um, in the last 20 years, I've increasingly tried to understand humanity like I would understand any other organism. I've tried to understand, if you will, the ecology of Homo sapiens. And in doing that, uh, we have, I realized we have this incredibly complex ecology. I mean, we, we consume uh, an incredible number of different resources compared to any other species. And we do that consumption in, in ways that, that make us a, a totally unparalleled organism on earth. We have an incredibly complex ecology. What other organism uh, consumes gold, diamonds, iron, <laughs> uh, wood, et cetera? Uh, uh, all the uh, fossil fuels that we consume, all the energy we consume uh, that demand such an, an incredible diet and that waste so much of the food that we do grow. Uh, so there are all these aspects to what we do. And now that there are 8 billion of us heading toward 10 or 11 billion, and now that the whole world is, it can consume so much more per person than we ever did in the past, um, we are having immense impacts. And we're not used to uh, our culture hasn't uh, been, did not form uh, with the realization that we were gonna be the dominant force on earth. All of us thought of us as a one individual actor doing whatever we normally did. And that was what it was like. The rest of the world went on, uh, the ecological world functioned as it was and we were doing our little part. But now we are so abundant and we're so demanding of resources uh, that uh, what we do has global ramifications, often uh, difficult to reverse, in some cases irreversible. I mean, I'll just mention something like in the time that our global population increased about tenfold from about 1750 until now, the amount a typical person consumed increased 60-fold in terms of the market value of all the goods and services we demand. And this is adjusting for inflation. This is this, no inflation is in this. This is adjusted for inflation, 60 fold greater consumption now than it was uh, at the time of the American revolution, for instance. So there's been a big increase in population and an even bigger increase in what each of us expect of, out of the environment for all the resources we require. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, it, it's startling, isn't it, when you think of those numbers and you present this amazing breadth of knowledge um, and reflection in the paper. So I was, I was going to sort of ask, Dave, how have you come to these sort of very big questions where you're thinking about the impacts of agriculture, where you think about the impacts of fossil fuel use, about human health and that intersection with the environment? How, how, what's led you to that from, I guess, where you started off in your career? I, mean, I started out... Um studying phytoplankton in lakes, diatoms and lakes. But when I did that, although I was studying diatoms and lakes, to me, I was trying to understand um, the mechanisms that determine the abundance of individual species uh, and that determine when they might be able to coexist with other species or would be displaced by other species. And so I was looking at what I consider to be some of the fundamental ecology of, of life on earth and the sort of consumer resource interactions, everything lives in a, in a food chain, a food web. 
those links between individuals, species, and food webs, these consumer resource interactions seem to me to be quite important. And so I've always tried to um, seek general principles, even though I always have studied, as all of us do, particular organisms. And so there'd be something unique to those organisms. And I admit that, but I always try to go past that and seek more general uh, ideas. And I, the second part is I've been intrigued by why the world has so many species from uh, when I was first drawn into ecology, just by how the world uh, happened to uh, end up having right now probably five or so million species of plants and animals and an unknowable number of, of whatever species is for viruses and bacteria and so on. And even some of the fungi are really hard to, to, to discern. And that interest was purely academic when I began but it's been clear. Uh, I've seen so many beautiful natural habitats I loved when I was younger disappear and become shopping centers and housing developments. And I know the same thing. I've seen this happen all around the world as I travel. I became more and more concerned with how humans were threatening biological diversity and whether that loss of diversity mattered, which led to our work on biodiversity and ecosystem functioning. And realized that we needed to understand ourselves much more thoroughly than, uh, than we do uh, to actually come up with solutions to these problems, to understand what we do, why we do it, what it implies, what the feedback effects are. Um, and I also feel that, that we almost all accept the way things are when we are born and arrive into the world, and then we get concerned as we see it changing, and we, we we're losing things that we value. Because of that, I thought that uh, a major push in my research has been to try to understand where we're going. If we keep doing what we're doing, what will the world be like in 25 years or 50 years or 100 years? Because I don't think we can change the future unless we can visualize the future we're currently creating. And by visualizing that and decided that that, that future is not acceptable, that it has uh, many flaws in it, we can then uh, find paths toward a better future, one that's more sustainable for humanity and for all the other species with which we share the earth. Thank you, that's um, a nice reflection on that. I really like in your paper as well, how you talk about, I mean, obviously you provide your, your ancient context where you talk about a lot of these interspecific trade-offs and how diversity happens in the first place, but how you then apply that or how we could apply that thinking to produce food in a more sustainable way with fewer pesticides and less pollution. Moving on from that, Dave, you say in your abstract, and I find this very arresting, and I find this very arresting sort of um, uh, thesis and motivation for what we might do, but they were saying that ecology needs to become a more mechanistic and predictive science. You've sort of hinted at that just in your um, response to the last question. I was just wondering your thoughts on, on how we can achieve that and what you think might have been holding us back from that to date? Um, well, I think it is a much more mechanistic science than when I stepped into it. And there have been many people, uh, Simon Levin, uh, Bill Murdoch early on did wonderful work, Buzz Holling. I mean, many, many people back when I was a, a, a grad student or, or new in my career were also trying to uh, add more mechanism and predictability to science. And I think we now understand many things, uh, much more than we did in the past, but our understanding of the functioning of full food webs is still very, very sketchy. Um, and so I think that that's something we're gonna need to have because among the various things that we do as humans is that we disrupt food webs. We um, kill off top predators. Um, 
And that changes the, the whole structure of that food web and everything that happens in that food web. Uh, we overfish certain species in the ocean that changes those whole food webs, whether on land or in, in, the, in the ocean. We're having these really uh, large impacts. But I do think if for us to understand the implication of what we're doing, where we are heading, how the world is changing and what, we're, what it will be like and what things it can cannot then do uh, uh, to provide services to humanity, requires that we need something much more than just some simple qualitative description of what we think might be the future. We really have to have some way to predict uh, in a mechanistic way. And do you, do you think that, so just thinking now about your biofuel example from the paper, and, and those who don't know what I'm talking about, that's just a good reminder to read the paper, it's well worth it. So do you think that could have, if we had some of these more mechanistic predictive models, do you think we could have better anticipated those sort of unintended consequences that came out from mandating that we use maize for fuel. Yeah, I do think. Uh, I mean, it's the part of, that is, I think, critically important is that when we think about the ecology of humans, we have to think about all the things we do. We have to think about our economies. When I consume some resource in California or Minnesota or wherever I might be at some moment in time, that resource is not available for anyone else. And if other people want that same resource, more of it will have to be made because I consumed it. And so what happened on biofuels was that we had this simple logic. Uh, plants take carbon dioxide out of the air through photosynthesis and they make sugars and cellulose and so on. And then we can use that plant biomass uh, and basically combust it one way or another. Um, and when we do that, we put CO2 back in the air. So it sounds like plants should be this ideal thing that can capture sunlight and give us energy without having any impact on the global carbon cycle. The reality is markedly different. Uh, growing crops takes a lot of energy. Almost a third of all greenhouse gas emissions on earth come from the agricultural production of crops. And uh, so that already gives you the hint that when you take a crop like maize and turn it into a biofuel, you'll already have a pretty big carbon emission signature just in that crop. Moreover, when you make the biofuel, you have to ferment the maize, and then you have to distill the alcohol off of that. Distilling it is boiling it, that takes a lot of energy too. When you do all of this, um, you find out you have a slight greenhouse gas benefit if you just look at that little part of the world where you're growing the crop and so on. But the part that was missed by everyone, including me early on in this, is that when you divert something like maize, uh, in the United States, we take about 30 to 40% of our annual production of maize and we have the best maize production in the world, the highest maize production in the world. And instead of putting it into the food system, the food chain, we put it into cars. When we do that, people around the world who used to buy that maize and many people grind the grain and use it for uh, as, as one of their main uh, flowers, if you will, for cooking, don't have it available. Other people use it to feed livestock. They don't have that available. The price of maize goes up. Farmers who wouldn't have grown it decide to grow it. People who wouldn't have cleared land realize how profitable it will be to clear land to grow more maize. People used to plant wheat will plant maize instead because of more profit. Soybeans become maize, etc and land is cleared around the world. And when that land is cleared, greenhouse gas is emitted. And those greenhouse gas emissions that partly make up for the decreased food supply caused by taking a food and making it into energy actually cause greater total greenhouse gas emissions from ethanol uh, used to replace gasoline in the United States than burning gasoline. I never thought it was possible to make something worse than gasoline. I mean, it just, it just shocks me. How could we do this? 
who could ever make something worse than gasoline? And yet we invented it because we didn't think about the whole world and all the links that, that occur in our economy. The ecology of humanity is very complex. We're globally linked. So that sort of brings me to my next question really nicely, Dave. So, I mean, what's really clear is you're in this paper, you're joining all of these different, different spheres, different disciplines, different ways of thinking about the world. And you make a really strong argument for that we need to be doing more of this sort of joined up multidisciplinary thinking and working with each other a bit more. But I guess for a lot of us, when we think about this as in practice, how do you do that? So do you think it's about all of us becoming a bit more generalist? So having some more interdisciplinary background in our training, or is it about bringing together a collection of specialists where, you know, you have the economists, you have the agricultural scientists, you have the um, social scientists, you have the ecologists. Have you, have you thought about how that can happen in practice? Yeah, well, I've tried it in a variety of ways myself as I became interested in questions for which I really didn't know the answers. So I've collaborated with agronomists, uh, with uh, agricultural economists, with normal economists, um, with people doing policy and so on. And it began uh, with uh, an environmental economist, Steve Plasky, who was a newly hired faculty member uh, in Minnesota. And I got him all, uh, a second office down the hall for mine. So he was in the ecology building as well as being in the economics building. And then uh, Craig Packer and I, Craig is a, a, a vertebrate ecologist, studied lions his whole career in the Serengeti, would go out to lunch with, uh, with Steve Pulaski uh, every week or almost every week for many years and just talked about what we did. And I started to understand how economists thought. He started to understand how ecologists thought. And we've been collaborating ever since. Uh, the, the three of us in many papers are sometimes subsets of two of us and pulling in other people. So it takes some time to learn the different languages. The especially hard part is the same word is used with different meanings in different disciplines. So it takes some time. And what I would say is if you are a new ecologist, you're getting a PhD, you can't do everything. Find some question that excites you, use your skills to address it as best you can. And as you um, move on and you find some place uh, to do work as, as a professional ecologist, talk with people who are doing related work but in a different discipline. Just talk with them, go out to lunch, see what they're doing, think about it, suggest the ideas that you think are the really big unanswered questions and see what they think theirs are. And after a while, you find some common ground. When you find the common ground, there's an immense amount of fun. I mean, I've spent a lot of my career studying diversity, why the world is so diverse, uh, why diversity matters. Well, diversity matters because species are specialists. They've evolved to be different than something else, and that makes them very good at doing something. The same is true for careers. Each career is a specialization. Each career does something very well. And at the same time, each career does something very poorly. Ecologists aren't, wouldn't be publishing many papers in economic journals and vice versa for good reason. And yet together, we can answer questions that are much more relevant to the true ecology of humanity. I mean, our ecology isn't just ecology. Our ecology is sociology, it's politics, it's economics, it's uh, geography, geology. It's all the different disciplines that we have in academia are all part of what humanity is about. It's arts and science, arts and, and so on. It's, it's very, very broad who we are and what we are. And we have to pull all those tools together if we're gonna to try to understand problems. And especially if we're gonna to try to find solutions that aren't what I call paper solutions. It's very easy for, for me and anybody to do an analysis and say, this analysis shows uh, that to help prevent future greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture, all we have to do is stop eating meat. 
wonderful. How are you going to achieve that? Right? That's ridiculous. We're not going to get people to stop eating meat because I told them to or you told them to. It's, it's a whole different issue when you ask, how do I actually achieve these goals that I know are going to be very important for the long-term sustainability of humanity and of the earth? And for that, I mean, how to eat less meat. And I'm not a vegetarian. I'm not pretending I'm a vegetarian. I don't want to imply that in this discussion. I'm, I would say I'm more a pescatarian. I don't eat much red meat at all. But every now and then I eat fish, and I think it's a healthier diet and environmentally sufficiently a good diet. But how do we change what people eat? Well, I would go to chefs who know how to make food people love and try to get chefs to make better tasting varieties of low meat or no meat dishes. And then I would try to find somebody who wants to start a company that wants to sell those and market them. Because to change what the world does, we have to change what people buy in stores because that's where a lot of our impact comes from. That means we have to have better products in the store, stores people like better, like for foods that taste better, that's actually better for their health and better for the environment. So there's a big win-win-win there. Somebody can make a lot of money selling things that are better for us and better for the environment, and we'll all be better off because of it. But it takes, then you have to start understanding how businesses operate and so on. So it's not a simple path. And yet I think when you realize the enormity of the problems created by 6 billion incredibly wealthy resource demanding humans, you have to think out of the normal ecological box and, and ask how can we really solve these problems? To a great extent, if you just write a typical science paper, uh, a science paper as an ecologist, it comes up with a, some uh, potential solution that if you can get it out in a way where other people know it and, under, and read about it, that can help the world understand what the problem is and, and motivate someone to help find a solution. That's one reason why I have pushed so hard in the last 25 or so years of my career to get papers into science and nature and PNAS and critiquing the Royal Society, et cetera. Those are the few journals that any journalist ever looks at, the few scientific journals that a media person ever looks at. If, if your papers are in more disciplinary, specialized journals, the public will never hear about them. Politicians will never hear about them. Uh, people in industry will never hear about them. So I've tried very hard to communicate in the most visible manner, visible uh, to people outside of academia, uh, because I think that that's a very important part. We can't endure the normal slow process of advances in ecological knowledge, making it into textbooks, waiting for the textbooks to be revised and actually have it in it, and then students reading it, and then 20 years later in their life, remembering something they learned 20 years ago and applying it. We need a faster turnaround. That means we have to have somehow to get what we're doing as scholars into places that it is being read by and impacting the thinking of politicians and business leaders uh, and typical citizens making daily choices. That's a really good, interesting reflection on that, Dave, because another question I did have is, you know, about that communication and to getting our science to policymakers and to decision makers. And I guess that's one strategy that you've used yourself. That's one strategy, but there are lots of them. Organizations like the Royal Society, uh, the American U.S. National Academy of Science and other academies of sciences in, in nations around the world were established to provide advice and guidance to their governments. And so um, those organizations can play a big part uh, in um, communicating uh, the major environmental issues that we face, but especially in communicating the whole range of alternative ways to solve these problems. 
discovering problems is important, but without solutions, politicians have nothing they, they can do. Business leaders have nothing they can do. And, and ultimately, we have to have solutions that are consistent with the whole philosophy of how we view ourselves as people and what we value and so on. Partly, we have to change values. Partly, we have to find solutions that can click with the values we already have. And that's uh, where we have to draw in much more of the social sciences. I even, I even suggest we draw in people who are uh, amazingly good at advertising products. They know how to sell something. We need to be able to sell the ideas that we have that we know are a big improvement in the long term for the future of humanity. We have to have a way to sell them. And maybe we need the ecology department put next to the business school's advertising department on college campuses so there'd be better interplay between those individuals. I mean, some of this is somewhat facetious, but it's not really facetious. When I come when I really look at it, I'm not being, I'm not trying to be facetious or funny about this. I do think we have to have these kind of linkages. I mean, it's I mean the whole ecosystem services and use of natural capital, I think that's in part trying to get it, you know, ecology into the sort of metrics and the the way that economists think and policymakers. But I've, I've spoken to some marketing people and they're like, those words are so dry and so boring. Mm -hmm. Like so. Maybe, maybe there's a point in setting up next door to marketing. So, Dave, I might just finish sort of on, on one question, and that's that, that your paper is amazing, but it, you can't help being really sobered by it. And I think that a lot of us who are, you know, ecologists in working in environmental science, you know, the messages are pretty heavy. How do you grapple with that heaviness and how do you sort of stay upbeat and what would you be your recommendations for other people, and particularly young people, I guess, um, as they're looking over at the next however many decades? Well, I guess I'm inherently an optimistic individual. I never imagine that we'll change the thoughts of all the governments of the world or of the 8 billion people on the world in a, in a rapid manner. Our history is one of having a deep, uh, reverence for the knowledge of the past and using that knowledge to guide us, which means that each generation sort of lives by the knowledge they learned uh, when they were being educated and mainly uses that to guide the decisions they make in the future. So there's a time delay in, in how we change. Humans are inherently conservative that way. We, we are distrustful of seeming new information. Uh, and that I think is, has probably been uh, in a, a wonderful uh, probably fairly adaptive traits well throughout our evolutionary history. There are lots of interesting ideas which sound plausible. You know, the earth is, turns out not to be the center of the universe. And uh, I'm not the center of the universe either personally, although all, all each human knows they should be the center of the universe, we're not. So I guess I'm optimistic because I know we're gonna make some bad and irreversible mistakes in the next 30 to 50 years. But I think in that amount of time, 50 years is two, two full next generations coming along, learning what the kind of things we're discovering right now and applying those in, in to their lives. And I think, although we will make some serious mistakes, I think we can turn the corner. And uh, before, if you will, all is lost, um, we can save an immense part of the diversity of the world and we can have ecosystems that work better. At the same time, we I, I'm hoping, and the way we actually have to do it, that we'll be eating healthier diets. So we have healthier lives lower mortality, but especially lower morbidity. Living with illness is no fun for anyone. And that's what really happens right now with the bad diets we're eating. So I, I think all the forces are in our social systems and in our brains to have us slowly adopt and change. Um, 
And because it'll be slow, it won't be the optimal solution, but I think we can solve our problems in, in, in a way that uh, we really will have in the long-term a much better future for humanity than where we're heading right now. Great, thank you, Dave. Thank you for leaving us on that optimistic note as well. Um, and thanks again for um, the great paper um, that you've written. Well, my pleasure. And um, I will let those who read it judge if it's a great paper or not, but I, I hope it can stimulate some thought and some discussion because we really have to understand ourselves as a species to, to uh, find the right path forward for humanity. Thank you for listening. Professor Dave Tillman will be available for a live discussion about his paper on Twitter on Tuesday the 24th of May 2022 from 3 to 4 p.m. UK time as part of our journal club. Join us then to chat to Dave. Tag your questions and comments on Twitter using hashtag jecolejournalclub. See the Journal of Ecology Twitter page or blog for more information.